Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. It's Parshas Dvarim uh, this week, Shabbos Chazayin. We're middle of the nine days, and we're going to be talking about the halachas of Shabbos, how to prepare for Shabbos Chazayin and Tishabab. And then we'll talk about the parsha and the morning that we're in. So in preparing for Shabbos, you can shower for Shabbos, but the shower that you take for Shabbos shouldn't be full bath temperature. It shouldn't be hot. You should diminish the heat that it should be, it doesn't have to be cold, might look warm, but just not hot, hot. Cutting nails is permitted, look up at Shabbos. And um, for women, shaving and waxing eyebrows and stuff like that, equivalent to cutting nails and can be done the Kavit Shabbos, but otherwise it shouldn't be done during the week unless, of course, for a Leal Tevila. Freshly laundered clothing can be worn for Shabbos, and you, if the Shabbos food that you're making contains meat, so you should avoid tasting it if possible. But if you do have to, you can taste it, but you shouldn't swallow. Children who usually eat before Shabbos, right? So in other words, they don't stay up for the Shabbos meal and you want to serve them their Shabbos suda, where essentially it's still Friday, that's okay. You can do that. And you can give them their Shabbos food, including meat, um, before they go to sleep. It's permitted to polish shoes for Shabbos, but the rest of the nine days, you should avoid that. And, but it is permitted always to clean up dirt. So like if your shoes get dirty, you can clean that off. But to actually polish them, that's like a, just bringing it to the next level, that can be done the Kabbat Shabbos, but otherwise it shouldn't. If you have absolutely nothing to wear for Shabbos, like your only suit got dirty, you could give the clothing to a non-Jew to wash, but new clothing, real brand new clothing, should not be worn even for Shabbos. Meat and wine are allowed the whole Shabbos, even Shal Shudas, um, and even if it's after Shkia, and after Tzais, until you bench. So as long as it's Shabbos for you, you can have meat and you can have wine. Abdullah is made on wine or grape juice, um, but if there's a child who's about between five years old or eight years old, so then they should be given the wine. But once they're older than that, then they're considered that they already understand the concept of a harbin and then just drink it yourself. With once we get into the week of Tishabav, that's Shur Shechal by Tishabav, so then it's more stringent and laundry is more stringent. So like even if you run out of clothing, it's kind of a serious situation. Uh, it might be better to buy then to wash, <clears throat> obviously you would ask a Shiloh if that comes up, and uh, you can't give clothing into the cleaners at all, even though you're planning on picking it up after Tisha B'av. Likewise, a non-Jewish maid can't wash your clothing during the nine days, even though you only want to use it after. Spot cleaning is permitted. Rabbi, can I ask a question? On Arab Tisha B'av, you asked me after. On Arab Tisha B'av, <clears throat> Um, one should eat a good meal before Mincha and then Asudum Avsekes after Mincha. That's the custom always that we divide it up with, uh, with Mincha. So whenever it is you're planning to have Mincha, if you're having at home, then uh, have a big Suda before and then have the, the Asudum Avsekes. The truth is that this year, because of the way that the, the Minyanim are scheduled, we're probably going to have to have two Minyanim and one's going to be earlier. So then, you know, that's the situation. You can obviously eat your Suda later and then just have a little break and then eat your Suda Mavsekis. Um, the Suda Mavsekis itself should be, only be bread and one cooked item, which many people take an egg, and then there's a minute to dip the bread into ashes. 
the Sudam of Sakis is eaten on the floor, a lone place, and uh, if you have three men, no zimun should be performed. And you can still wear shoes during the Sudam of Sakis. And ideally, when you're benching by the Sudam of Sakis, you should have in mind that you're not being the Kabul, the tainus of Tishabab. If you don't, it's also okay. But l'chadchila, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to have that in mind that you're not being the Kabul, the fast, with your benching. Tishabab itself, all the halachas of Tishabab, that means the fasting, the shoes, washing hands, etc. Everything begins with shkia. As soon as shkia, which is, I don't know exactly, but it's going to be probably like 825, I'm guessing, um, it, that's when it begins. Pregnant and nursing women, this on Tishabab, they do have to fast. But obviously, if someone becomes sick or woozy and, and they're worried about dehydration, you could break your fast, and ideally you should consult with a Rav, being that it's not Shabbos or Yom Kippur, you can call and uh, get, you know, direction. <clears throat> Some place can permit saying Tehillim on Tisha B'av after Chatzais, if you say every day. So like if you say the Tehillim of the Yom, so place can permit you to do it on Tisha B'av as well after Chatzais. But otherwise, all forms of Torah learning... Um, need to be avoided other than the kinds of things that you are allowed to learn on Tisha B'av. So you can learn, obviously, Eicha, you can learn the Kenes, you can learn in Masechus Mayakatan, the third parak you're allowed to learn, those are Helchus Avelis, and uh, Yermia, the parts of Yermia, which are the sad parts, which is a lot of it. So <clears throat> those all can be learned, but otherwise not. You are allowed to say Parshas Shema and Bahayim Shemaya when you put on Tefillin by Mitcha. Now this year, what's going to turn out is that we're going to have to have two minyanim for Mariv to accommodate everybody who wants to daven in Shul. So one of the minyanim of Mariv is going to be early. It's going to be a Mincha Mariv. And that minyan, you're going to need to say Kriyashma again. So even though it's Tisha and you're not supposed to be learning Torah, you could say Kriyashma again, you should say Kriyashma again once it becomes Vade Laila. And by day, by Mincha, the custom is that when you put on Tefillin, by Mincha, you should say the parasha of Shema and the parasha of Ahayim Shemaya. Some people, the custom is not to say it because it's Tisha B'av, but there's likewise an equally prevalent custom to say it. So you can do as you see fit or whatever your minig is. All washing is prohibited on Tisha B'av, and washing hands is only up to the knuckles till here. <clears throat> if someone's hands get dirty, you can wash them, and if you change a baby, likewise, you could wash it. You can use a little bit of soap, but you should keep it to a minimum as much as is necessary. After Chatzais, you're allowed to wash dishes, and although your hands get wet, uh, cooking all food preparation can be done, but again, after Chatzais. And this is even though you might have finished kinnis or not saying kinnis. Till, all these things have to wait till chatzais. Leather shoes are prohibited. Sneakers, which are primarily made of synthetics, but they have like some decorative leather, leather that's okay. Uh, important to remember that on Tisha B'av, you don't say uh, Shalom Aleichem, you don't say good morning, you don't give gifts on Tisha B'av. We do act as Avelim, like Avelim during Shiva. So that's an important thing to remember, to act Tisha B'av-like. So if someone does say Shalom Aleichem to you or if someone does say good morning or something like that, so that you do the same thing that it says in Hachas is that you answer him softly, which you communicate that it's not really appropriate. So you don't have to give him Musr, but you just answer, you don't, you don't give him a big hello, good morning back. <clears throat> Nachem and Anenu are said by Mincha on Tisha B'av, but if you forget, you don't have it again. Uh, and if you remember... Uh, you can say it, I believe, like in the Hiratzen, after, before you take three steps back, you could say it then without saying Baruch Hashem at the end. Typically, on, uh, on, on Matzah Tisha B'av, 
normally the halacha is you have to wait until the next day, chatzais, and you don't shower and you don't do laundry and you don't listen to music. However, this year, being that it's Arab Shabbos, it's Thursday night, so there are the exception is you're allowed to do laundry. You're already allowed to start doing laundry um, Thursday night, which is very helpful. So that you have clothing on Kabbat Shabbos. And um, can also allow you to take a quick shower so that uh, you can kind of start your shower preparations for Shabbos as well. So, I mean, obviously you're going to take another shower on Kabbat Shabbos so you can start the process Thursday night by taking a quick shower. Parashas <clears throat> Dvarim begins with Moshe Rabbeinu addressing Klal Yisrael, Ela Advarim Asher Dibar Moshe Klal Yisrael. These are the words that Moshe Rabbeinu spoke to all of Klal Yisrael. And it seems, when you read through the parasha, that he kind of gives a history. He recounts the story of Klal Yisrael, that mainly, largely of what happened in Parashas Bamidbar. So, first, there's this lengthy introductory paragraph that seems to explain exactly where they were and what time of year it was, what the time span was when he gave the speech. The Pasuk says that, These are the words that Moshe spoke to all of Kali Yisrael. It was on the other side of the Yarden. It was in the Midbar. Arava, it was in a place called Arava. Mul Suf, it was against the area of Suf. Bain Paran of Bain Teifel, it was between Paran and Teifel. Belavan, Vichatseris, Vidizahav. And it was 11 days from if you took the route through Seir. So that's a lot of descriptive terms to give a place that's actually very easy to describe. They were on the other side of the yard. Very straightforward. That's where they were. And that's where they stayed until the end of Sefer Dvaram, which Rabbeinu passed away. And then they crossed the yard into Eretz Yisrael. So to just describe where they were, the first two words were sufficient. They were in Eber Yard. That's the name of the place. And then the Pasuk gives a whole bunch of other descriptive terms and they are also uh, a little confusing because we don't even know places that have that name, which Chazal asked in Medrash. It's, 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 it's interesting. And then the rest of the parasha talks about how Moshe asked Hashem to add people to help him out, and Hashem added Shoftim, and he added the Zikanim, and then, then there's a lot of backstory given, which we weren't familiar with till now, about how the Miraglim came about. You know, Parsha Shalaf just begins with uh, Hashem telling Moshe, send Anashim, send Miraglim, send the spies. But here in Dvarim, Moshe Rabbeinu gives the whole story that happened before that. All the people came and they demanded that we should check out Eretz Yisrael. And then he approached Hashem and Hashem talked to him. A lot of backstory given, again, giving us more perspective on how the story of the Miraglim happened. And then it talks about how the Jews lost hope and how Hashem reacted and some more. So what's the purpose of all of this? What, what is the purpose of this recounting of history? What is Moshe Rabbeinu trying to accomplish? And what's the meaning of that first descriptive Pasuk that gives all those names of places which we aren't even familiar with? So Rashi answers this question by bringing a Medrash. He says, you know what? Moshe Rabbeinu was actually talking to Kali Yisrael when he gave them that whole long list, laundry list of locations it wasn't describing where they were. He was talking to them, and he was giving them techacha. Techacha is rebuke. He was rebuking them. Now, he didn't want to shame Klai Yisrael, and he didn't want to rebuke them openly. So out of respect to Klai Yisrael, to maintain their dignity, to, to give them honor, he only delivered his rebuke very subtly. And all the locations that he mentioned, that are mentioned in that first pasuk, are all really references to locations where Klal Yisrael sinned, where Klal Yisrael made a mistake. 
and he mentioned them in this roundabout way so as to preserve their, their dignity, but at the same time to give them rebuke. For example, the first pasuk, the first word is Bamidbar, right? It was Avayar, and that's where they were. Bamidbar. So he says it doesn't mean Bamidbar. Of course, they're in the Midbar. Bamidbar means the very first time, as soon as they entered the Midbar, after they had Kriyas Yamsev, Klaishra complained to Moshe Rabbeinu, they complained to Hashem, we have nothing to eat, we have nothing to drink, why don't you just leave us in Mitzrayim? Now, this was three days of traveling, millions of people without food and without water. After three days, they complained but it was still held against them. They were on a level of faith that they should have just waited patiently until Hashem delivers them the man and the bear. That was Bamidbar's reference to that sin, lack of faith. The next word is Barava. That refers to the sin of Baal Pa'ar, that the whole Shevet Shimon, when they sinned with the Midianite women, they, they fell into the trap of, of serving the Abayi of Baal Pa'ar. The word mulsuf refers to when they were on the brink of the Yamsuf and the Mitzrayim were running after them and they said, Why didn't you just leave us in Mitzrayim to die there? Why are you killing us over here? Also, a lack of faith. The last word is vidizahav. There was too much gold. It refers to the sin of the Egel. The Egel Azov. So there was a lot of hidden references over here to different times when Kali Yishol sinned and Moshe Ben was giving them rebuke. The interesting thing is, though, that the end of the parasha continues giving them rebuke, right? He tells them all that they did with the miraculum, and over there he's not subtle. Over there he spells it out, black and white, actually gives us information that we didn't even know till now. We knew about the miraculum, but we didn't even know the whole backstory, how Claudius Yisrael brought it on themselves. They demanded those miraculum. So if he's going subtle, why does then he switch into very open, elaborate uh, rebuke? So let's try to understand what this means and what is it coming to teach us, and it'll give us a little bit of an insight how to approach the mourning of the Kharban Beis HaMikdash. Rebuke is a difficult thing to accept. We don't like being rebuked. I'll, I'll speak for myself. I don't like being rebuked. We don't like being shown our own inconsistency, our hypocrisy, our deficiencies. And we'd love to believe we're okay, right? Maybe we're not perfect, but we're okay. We, you know, it's fine. We're okay. We're good. It, it doesn't feel good when someone shows you up. And it really doesn't feel good when that person is someone you respect, you really respect, uh, someone you look up to and someone you love. When they rebuke you, it really hurts and it's really hard to listen to. Now, the truth is, I was thinking to myself that this time period we're living through, the coronavirus from February till now, and it's gone through different stages when Elena, so many people were getting sick, I got sick, and, and people were suffering directly and then it, when it phased into Baruch Hashem, that died down. But there was still a lot of social distancing. School was difficult. Really getting to family, friends is difficult and still is difficult. And even with the easing of some of the restrictions, it's still not normal and it's still hard. And there's still a lot of things we just don't have. And it, it, it doesn't feel that good. It feels like Hashem is rebuking us. That's really what it feels like. And you wonder, and everybody wonders, and we all wonder to ourselves, that what is Hashem saying? What is the rebuke? What does Hashem want from us? And that's the question everybody wants to know. Now, you know, there's always in rebuke, these kind of rebuke, there's an element perhaps of punishment. And I'm not talking about that. Punishment is something that we approach very differently. We approach it with faith. We approach it with bitachin. We accept it. And we, we, we just accept what Hashem is sending our way, trusting Him. 
I'm not talking about that. I'm actually talking about something which we need to question, which is Hashem is trying to tell us something. What is he trying to tell us? And that we do need to think and question and wonder, what is it? What is going on here? Now, if we look at the way Moshe Rabbeinu delivered his techacha, his rebuke to Klai Yisrael, we see an amazing thing. In that first couple of sentences, where he went through a whole laundry list of rebuke, there were a lot of things mentioned in that first Pasuk. You go through the Rashi, a lot of rebuke was delivered. But he didn't say an iota more than he absolutely had to to communicate the message to them. He didn't want to degrade them. He didn't want to humiliate them. He, he, he didn't spell out their sins black and white. He didn't want to diminish their, their honor. He had the utmost respect for Klai Yisrael. So though he needed to rebuke them, he only did so through subtle mentions of the various mistakes they made. What does this mean? There are different kinds of rebuke. Let's all think back to when we used to get rebuked kind of off in our childhood, right? So sometimes you do something really, really, really wrong, right? Kid does something really bad. We all know what we've done, right? So you, uh, let's say you, you went and you played hooky from school and your parents didn't even know, you just totally skipped school, you were in the playground all day. And then your parents get a call from the teacher, oh, where's your son today? And they don't know where you are, and they get scared, and then the whole thing goes, and they finally find you. What happens when you come home, right? You, you get a rebuke. So there's a lot of different forms that rebuke could, could uh, take. You know, they can yell at you, they can be stern, they can, but, but there's a lecture, you're going to get that lecture, and you're going to get a speech, and they're going to spell out exactly what you did, why it was so bad, what the consequences are going to be. That's rebuke, right? That's how we picture rebuke, a long lecture with accompanied by yelling and all kinds of threats and punishments and etc. That's rebuke. That's one kind of rebuke. It is one kind of rebuke. And the truth is that what we call the taichacha, parshas kisavai, parshas b'chuk kaisai, that's the kind of rebuke that that is. It talks about exactly, elaborates what the sin is. It says, if you do this, if you do that, what the consequences are going to be. It lists out the whole punishment that will come along with it. That's one kind of, of rebuke. But if you think back, and I think back personally, to there was sometimes you get a very different form of rebuke. And I feel that this rebuke has the tendency to make the biggest impression and it's very memorable. You don't forget it. And that's, you do something wrong. And a parent and a teacher, they're there and they witness it or they know about it. And then they call you over and they said, you? You did this? Surprise! I'm shocked. How could you do this? I expect so much more from you. And then that's it. Disappointment the expression of surprise and shock where the person demonstrates love and respect with the rebuke itself. The rebuke itself demonstrates that you're, <laughs> you mean so much to me is extraordinarily powerful. This form of rebuke doesn't delve into what the sin was, why it was so bad. There's no lecture. There's no consequences mentioned. They're not relevant. They don't matter. The rebuke focuses on one thing and one thing only. You are so much better than this. That forces us to own up to our action, to recognize that whatever justification we might have had was really a self-deception. That kind of deed, it just doesn't make sense for us. We have so much more potential and value. And that's the rebuke. That's how Sefer Devarim begins. Moshe Rabbeinu 
but giving rebuke to Klai Yisrael, techacha to Klai Yisrael, at the end of his life, there's no extensive elaboration of what the sin was. No. There's no description of the consequences and the punishment. Also not. Even the sin itself is barely mentioned just enough that they should know what he's talking about. And he's demonstrating respect and honor of dignity of Klai Yisrael because that was the rebuke. The rebuke was, you, Klai Yisrael, you're such an elevated and holy nation. I have so much respect for you. I can't say anything more which would possibly humiliate you, but how could you do such a thing? The pastnished. It's not appropriate for you. Now, the rebuke doesn't end, and it doesn't stop there. Moshe Rabbeinu does continue. And then when he talks about the miraglim, he goes into it at that depth. And he does elaborate on it, and he does talk about the consequences. But the rebuke had to begin this way. They were going to be rebuked, and, and they are going to need to do tshuva. But any rebuke or any call for tshuva, if it's, going to be, if it's going to work, it has to begin this way. It has to begin with the message to the person themselves that I love you, I respect you, I know your value, and that's my question. How is this appropriate for you? And if we take that message, then we can hear the rest. Then we can hear the rest of the story, the rest of the rebuke. But if we don't get that message, we can't hear anything. The first recognition and the most singular, most important and powerful rebuke is us valuing ourselves. We have to become honest with ourselves and say, you're right, this wasn't appropriate for me. When Hashem is doing something to us, which He is now, and we feel like we're being rebuked. The first question we should ask ourselves is not, what does Hashem want me to do? But, what is Hashem trying to tell us? Hashem is trying to say, I expect more from you. I expect more from you. And then we have to think about that. Do we expect more from ourselves? Hashem really, really understands us. He, he knows our challenges, our strengths, and our weaknesses. He knows exactly what we've been through in our lives. Everything. There's nothing he doesn't know. He engineered it. And he knows what we struggle with and what we're good at. He knows what he can expect from us. And what he can expect from us is what we need to expect from ourselves. And Hashem loves us and values us beyond our comprehension. So if Hashem tells us, I expect better from you, that's a very powerful message. And that's a message we need to take to heart. You know, sometimes we like, we fool ourselves about what we really should expect from ourselves. But when someone looks at us straight in the eye and it says, you, how could you do this? Suddenly that's a moment of clarity. And that opens up a person to hear a lot more things. Once we appreciate our own value, we understand our potential and we are disappointed in ourselves in that way. We expect more from ourselves in a very positive way. We demand more from ourselves. So then when someone spells out what it was you did wrong, it comes across very differently. It doesn't come across as attack. It doesn't come across as denigrating, as humiliating. It just comes across as instruction. Look, you're learning how to drive a car, right? And you have the instructor standing next to you and he says, no, 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 hit the brake! And he yells at you. You don't take it personally. You shouldn't, at least. I mean, that's what... You hired him for, right? To tell you how to do it, to give you instruction. It doesn't, it's not a personal thing. He's, 
he's giving you directions. Someone yells at you, no, right, not left, right. That, that's, not, that's not personal. When you get to the point where you're ready to listen, where, when we get to the point when we have that recognition that, you know, we should be better. Now, how do we get better? Then we're open to hear directions. We're open to hear instructions. So we want to know what it is that Hashem wants from us. I think we'll, we will know the answer to that question if we hear the first message. Do we expect more from ourselves? When we start to expect more from ourselves, then I think it'll become very clear. We won't have that question anymore, what we need to change. We'll get the Siyat HaDishmaya to understand. Story, I remember my Rosh Hashiva saying, he used to like to say this story. Um, he said that Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky would say that his whole life he has a Karas Atayv. He was an old man when he passed away, but his whole life he has a Karas Atayv that right when he was a very young Bachar, he came at a young age to Yeshiva Slobodka, probably was 13 or 12. And he said some of the older Bacharim invited him to sit by their table and he ate breakfast with them and he picked up a piece of bread and he bit into it. And one of the older Bacharim told him, you know, a bentura doesn't eat that way. You take the bread, you break off a piece and you eat it. You don't stick it into your mouth and you bite. It's not, it's not proper decorum. It's not, not a chashable way of eating. It's not a, doesn't demonstrate the chashivas of a bentura. And he says his whole life he has a kara satayv for that message, right? That, that was techacha, but it was techacha as giving a person direction. The person demonstrated to Yaakov Kamenetsky, you're a ben Tyra. More is expected of you. And then explained to him how. And he appreciated it so much. So when the message comes with so much more is expected of us and we agree to that, then we can hear. We can hear what it is we need to do and we can, we can, we can accept it. When we mourn the Kharban Beis HaMikdash, I think what we're really meant to do is HaKadosh Baruch Hu thinks that we really are worthy of having a Beis HaMikdash. The question is, do we think we're worthy of having a Beis HaMikdash? And that means like this. We do different things, however we live our lives. Did we ever stop and think, if I would be a Jew that would live in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, and I knew that today, I mean, the go will step into the Beis HaMikdash and visit the Beis HaMikdash with Hashem's presence right there, perhaps a fire on top of the Mizbeach that never burns out, an open display of a Kaddish Baruch Hu's presence. Would I be comfortable with the things I do to be, at the same time, a Jew that walks into the Beis HaMikdash? And I have a sneaking feeling that we wouldn't. <laughs> I think there's a lot of things that we perhaps wouldn't do if we would be Jews that would walk into the Beis HaMikdash. But we say, well, we're not, right? We're, we're not, we're, well, we don't have the Beis HaMikdash. But that's what Hashem is telling us. No, 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 you're missing the boat. You are. You are worthy of having the Beis HaMikdash. And would you understand that? And would you recognize that? And would you treat yourself like that? You actually would be worthy of having the Beis HaMikdash. And that's a very powerful thought to approach the nine days in Tisha B'Av with. When we mourn the Beis HaMikdash, it's something real. It's something that demands something of us. We mourn the Beis HaMikdash, you want it back. That means you want to live with the Beis HaMikdash. Do you know what it means to live with the Beis HaMikdash? It means you have to demand more from yourself. You have to demand of yourself to be a Jew who could live with the Beis HaMikdash, who walk into the Beis HaMikdash, who could walk into the Beis HaMikdash when it's full of Kvayr Hashem. And that's very powerful. And I think it can color how we need to look at ourselves, what it is Hashem wants from us now, 
And the very first step, we have to get past that first step, that it, we need to demand more from ourselves. We need to have a bigger erech, a bigger chashivus, a bigger appreciation for who we are, what we can, what our potential is. May Kosh Baruch give us the siyata d'shmaya to rise to the challenge. Hear the message he's sending us and truly become worthy of having a Mesa Mikdash that we may be rebuilt. Amen. Have a good night and a good Shabbos, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.